Welcome to the Bitcoin for Boomers show, and now the original Bitcoin boomer, Gary Leland. So I'm the original Bitcoin boomer. <laughs> That's good to know. I didn't know I was the original, but I am a boomer, and I do like Bitcoin, so I can go with being the original uh, Bitcoin boomer. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Leland, your host for the Bitcoin for Boomers show. And this is our last show of the season, I'm sorry to say. Hopefully, though, our best. You know, I really enjoy talking about Bitcoin. That's why I do this show. I, I talk about it most of the time anyway, even when I'm not doing a show, either doing a podcast or talking with friends or else I'm reading about it or watching information on YouTube about it. A large amount of my time is consumed uh, learning and talking about Bitcoin. So it seemed like a natural progression to share my knowledge of Bitcoin with people on TV. Now we're here in Dallas, Fort Worth at the Biz TV studios broadcasting live and I'm just really trying to share and educate people about Bitcoin just to make sure you understand. This is not an infomercial where I'm selling Bitcoin <laughs> when the show's over. I'm not going to give you a phone number to call in and buy some Bitcoin from me. I, I don't sell Bitcoin as a matter of fact. I only buy Bitcoin but I do think I know a decent amount about the subject and that's what I want to do is share that with you. It's probably something maybe watching this show is not going to make you fall in love and start buying Bitcoin right away. But Bitcoin is growing and it's coming and it's getting stronger and just by watching this show maybe you'll be educated enough that when you're standing by the water cooler or with some friends and someone mentions Bitcoin you'll have an idea of what they're talking about and you can join the conversation. So it's just to give you a little knowledge. Now today we're going to be joined by a friend of mine, Mark Hopkins. Mark is also a resident of Dallas-Fort Worth area. Mark is actually the first person that ever told me about Bitcoin. He told me to buy Bitcoin when it was $100. Unfortunately, I didn't listen to him and it was a few thousand dollars before I started buying Bitcoin. But Mark has been in Bitcoin for a long time. He's an IBM futurist. Uh, he's followed a lot of the tech uh, life that I have. We've kind of had parallel careers. So I can't wait to get Mark on the uh, show and talk with him. We're going to have some great conversations. And also, I want to make sure you tell your friends and family about this show. You may want to call up someone right now and say, hey, turn to this channel and watch the Bitcoin for Boomer show with Gary Leland. And they'll learn a bit about Bitcoin. We'll be back right after this. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Gary Leland here with the Bitcoin for Boomer show. As I said, I'm Gary Leland. I'm a boomer. We're talking about Bitcoin. I think that says everything you need to know right there, right? Welcome back to another episode. And actually, this is our last episode for the season. So I hope this is not the first episode you're catching, but I hope you've enjoyed our other episodes. Um, we're at the Biz TV studios in Dallas, Fort Worth, Texas, having a great show. Travis, I like the uh, music selection nowadays much better than the music we had to start with. Yeah, I had to pick that out for you just to get something a little more your speed. Oh, my speed? You make me say like, like I'm a walker or something there. No, you're a rocker. <laughs> well, now since we're talking to you, you have a question for us? Uh, we got anything from the audience? Just so you know, before we go to that, 
If you do have questions for us, send them to GaryLeland at gmail.com, GaryLeland at gmail. And we try to answer a question, one or two questions on each episode. And if we don't get it on this episode, which is the last episode of the season, hopefully we'll be renewed for next season and we can ask it on the start of next season shows. But Travis, what do we have here? What are our questions for today's show? That's a good one here. It's a good one. I'm all excited. I need to learn a little more about, but we have a question from Clark in Nevada. He wanted to know, what is blockchain? Okay, what is blockchain? Well, blockchain is really something that makes Bitcoin possible. You know, people had worked on e-money, let's say, or e-gold or e-cash for years, but they couldn't find out a way to prevent people from spending money twice. You know, if e-commerce or e-money is a computer file, it'd be like a file of a picture. You could just print it over and over and make 20 copies of a photo. You can make 20 copies of your money. And before long, you'd have a ton of money. So they couldn't figure out how to prevent people from making copies of money. So they came out with blockchain, which is basically a network of computers all covering, carrying the whole history of Bitcoin and all agreeing on where and who owns what Bitcoins. So it's kind of a, a quick way to say it, but I do have someone on the show today who knows more than I do about blockchain. And so we're gonna bring on Mark Hopkins, a good friend of mine who's been on many of my shows before. And Mark, I know my answer was very primitive there um, that you could answer a little bit more, but blockchain basically is what makes not only Bitcoin work, but mostly all cryptocurrency work if it wasn't for the blockchain. Right, yeah. So um, whenever I uh, give a speech or I, I, I give a lecture at a college or something like that, I try to level set everybody. I assume nothing about the knowledge level around blockchain or cryptocurrency in the audience. So I have this one-sentence definition for Bitcoin. Uh, it's uh, Bitcoin is the reference architecture for blockchain, which is a decentralized protocol for mitigating the requirement for trust between counterparties. That's a very dense and multi-syllabic answer that you can spend hours really uncompacting. But basically, it's, it's like saying it's an internet protocol just like TCP IP or email or FTP or any of these other things that we know very well and use every day. But it's specifically for, not necessarily for the transaction of value, although that is a very important component of it, it's for reducing the requirement for trust between two people who have no reason to trust each other. Um, and it's very much tied to uh, uh, an old computer science problem that's very, very uh, much more adept at uh, describing the, the solution being attempted here called the Byzantine Generals problem. Well, actually, because of the blockchain, we don't have the need for a third-party banker, which is who we'd use right now is we'd use a third party to say, Gary, you no longer have ownership of that uh, $10. Mark now has ownership of the $10, and he would record it in the ledger book. So right. the blockchain basically took away that person, is what you, you're you saying. Now we can right, yeah. do a transaction with nobody to do it that is automatically verified. Right. It's, it's, uh, if you're an accountant or a tax guy, a tax lawyer, or something like that, you're familiar with the term double, double ledger accounting, which is uh, an industry jargon way of saying uh, if your company and my company do business with each other, you've got a set of books that you've got to maintain. 
and I've got a set of books that I've got to maintain to account for all that stuff for a variety of reasons. It's not, not just tax stuff, but for just making sure your business stays profitable. That's called double ledger accounting because you've got two ledgers. Uh, blockchain, uh, at the crux of that, is single ledger accounting. That means everybody has an authoritative uh, record of every transaction. But unlike uh, modern ERP systems, we're just throwing all kinds of jargon out there. ERP systems, those are enterprise resource uh, processes. Uh, that's a fancy jargon way of saying uh, uh, complex accounting software made by Oracle and SAP and Infor and other big companies like that. So rather than having everything centrally managed by one of those types of companies or a bunch of consultants running off of software made by those types of companies, we're talking about a decentralized protocol that performs that function for all of us. And I think that's what really is um, the new concept or the, the part of Bitcoin or blockchain is the fact that it's decentralized, which we were getting earlier. We don't have that banker sitting there, one third party, trying to tell us who owns what and where that money's going from whom to whatever. There's no, no central person there, it's all out there. You know, but really, Mark, when you get to it, when I first got into Bitcoin and I was talking to other boomers, they're always going, how does this work? You know, well, and I felt like I really needed to explain the blockchain to them. You know, here's that I spent a lot of time trying to explain something that was hard to explain to begin with. And I, I really relatively didn't even understand to begin with, but I knew enough to make myself dangerous. But as time goes by, you realize there's no real reason to be explaining to anybody how the blockchain works. When people send email, if I introduce someone to email and I was to do it for the first time, I don't think they'd be going, well, how's this email work? I mean, they so don't really need to know that. You don't need to explain the, the command line level, you know, SMTP and IMAP and POP3. It's just, you can use metaphors. You can use higher level metaphors. You're exactly right on that. Uh, and and the, the higher level metaphor that I use to explain uh, the idea that this is an internet protocol, a decentralized internet protocol, is to compare, everybody understands what PayPal is at this point. Everybody understands what an instant messenger is, like Telegram or Facebook Messenger, or Yahoo Messenger, or AIM if you're, you know, internet oldster. And everybody understands what email is at this point. These are all like just givens, right? So if you can understand the difference between uh, an instant messaging protocol and email as a protocol, which is to say, Facebook Messenger, you have to log into Facebook Messenger to, uh, you know, you have you have to have an account with Facebook. You have to be centrally managed by Facebook to use that protocol versus uh, email where you have an account with Google, you can have an account with Yahoo, you can roll your own server, you can do, I mean, if you, you know, there's all a pantheon of op options when it comes to email because it's an open protocol. It's a federated and decentralized protocol for transferring messaging data. It serves a very similar purpose to messaging protocols, but it's a vastly different architecture. And once you can understand the difference between email and IM, you can understand the difference between PayPal and Bitcoin, or PayPal and blockchain, or PayPal and any other number of cryptocurrencies based off of the, the ideas that uh, Bitcoin is based on. Yeah, I think too many people get too hung up on you know, how it works. I mean, it's been here now 11 years. We've proven it works. 
I mean, I think, I think we're beyond that, that we have to prove that this is something that works. It's been up and running for 11 years, 99.99% of the time, with no one hacking into it or no one breaking into it. And so I think it's kind of proven itself on that part. And that's why I say, I, I just really think it's a pointless thing to get too far into that. If you're trying to explain Bitcoin to someone for the first time, you know, basically just cover it real quickly. Now, Mark, we're going to have to take a break here. Uh, in just a second, we're up a hard break, but when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation, and I want to go over a little bit more, which I kind of skipped there, the Byzantine general uh, situation there. So I sure. want to go over that when we come back, and everybody who's watching, please stay tuned till after the, uh, come back after the message. And like I said, remember, if you have a question for us on the next week's show, send it to GaryLeland at gmail.com. Talk to you in a minute right after this. And welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, having a great conversation today about Bitcoin and blockchain with Mark Hopkins, a good friend of mine. Um, but before we go to Mark, I do want to tell you about another show I run. It's called the Four Minute Bitcoin Show. That's fourminutebitcoin.com. Comes out every weekday, and it's a show that's four minutes or less. So if you want to learn something about Bitcoin, quick and sweet, every day, Go to 4MinuteBitcoin.com where we cover one news story every day about Bitcoin. You'll learn something about Bitcoin and it won't take you very long. Now let's bring Mark back on and continue our conversation. But Mark, before we get into the conversation here, tell everybody a little bit about yourself for people who may not be aware of, uh, of you. Because I mean, you've been involved in this space for a long, long time. I think the biggest claim to fame for this audience is that I'm the one that told you about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, told me about Bitcoin when it was a hundred dollars, and that was ten thousand. Luckily, I didn't wait till it get to, got to ten thousand, but I didn't buy it when it was a hundred. You know, so uh, that's right. But uh, yeah, so I guess uh, I, I spent a, a long time as a journalist. Uh, you also talked a little bit about enterprise terminology earlier on. Yeah, I was an enterprise tech journalist. Really exciting stuff. And then uh, I uh, got into the Bitcoin beat uh, as part of my work. Uh, over at Silicon Angle, we were one of the first publications that was not a cryptocurrency publication to talk about Bitcoin and talk about blockchain. And then uh, I went out and I've done a bunch of other stuff in startups and tech, and I'm an IBM futurist. And these days, I I just kind of play around with what's interesting. And and uh, crypto, after all these years, Bitcoin is is still one of the most interesting things in the world to me. I think they they call it a rabbit hole. But it really is a rabbit hole. I mean, to me, once I fell down the rabbit hole, it started consuming all my time wanting to learn more about not only Bitcoin, but uh, Austrian economics. I mean, there's a lot of things that once you fall in that rabbit hole, you start wanting to consume that you had no interest in before. Uh, you, I mean, you and I have kind of followed a parallel path throughout a lot of our career. When you got into podcasts, I, I was... Early on in, in you know, the podcasting days, uh, blogging, you, you and I followed a similar you know timeline on that stuff. And I got to say, I've, you know, I've always both been early adopters. And of the technologies that I've been an early adopter of, I would say Bitcoin and blockchain and cryptocurrency and all these like concentric circles around that, these are the only things that have held my interest for as long as they have to the degree that they have. 
Uh, I agree completely, and I, I tell a lot of people right now when I'm talking to someone, to me, right now where we're at today in life with Bitcoin, I compare a lot to how podcasting was in 1996 or 2004 and 2005. You know, when it first started, people are the same. If you go to conferences, they're kind of the same as far as people's attitude. I mean, there's a lot of similarities to me. People want to help each other a lot, you know, and uh, now when you go to a podcasting <laughs> conference, it's not even close to that anymore. Now that it's a big business, it's not even the same thing anymore. But podcasting has disappeared from that. But that's where Bitcoin is to me. For sure, yeah. Like for those that are familiar with the evolution of podcasting pre Mark Maron, like there was that there was there was like the the, the, the hobbyist phase, and it was you know, podcast pickle and Libsyn and uh, Adam Curry's thing and whatever and my my Blip Media, and for a while it blew up and it got interesting whenever you know Mashable and TechCrunch and Gizmodo and the big guy the big guys got into it, and then. Then there was like the moment, you know, in the, like the second or the third wave when comedians discovered it, like Mark Maron and, you know, uh, all these other guys, uh, Joe Rogan, and people that have basically turned it in from something that a hobbyist will play with into like this is this is truly competitive to mainstream media. Yeah, and I mean, we're, we're still on that first wave of cryptocurrency, I would say. Yeah, I agree completely. And that's, and it's, it's still really new and it's interesting and it's fun. We're podcasting. Okay, yeah, I've done it now for a long time. Doesn't hold my interest that much anymore. And you know, before that, it was all e-commerce. That didn't hold my interest much anymore. So I'm, I guess this will probably be my last wave I ride at my age is uh, Bitcoin. I'll get another ten or fifteen years out of this. And this will probably be my last, my last big wave. Well, maybe three D printing. It snuck into Bitblog boom this year. You know, that could be your next. That could be your next really adopted. And I found that really interesting, and I and I'm I'm really I am interested in three D printing. I think that uh, that that is very interesting looking. Um, but let's stick let's let's don't change into that because I think we could Harry on a whole another conversation there and completely get off the topic because I am interested in that. So we're going to stay away from three D printing. But let's go to that Byzantine general problem that we brought up in the first section. Most people sure. are not going to know or even have heard of the Byzantine general problem. So I'm gonna let you give us a quick rundown on that really quick. What is, what is the problem that Byzantine generals have? And how many Byzantine generals are there running around nowadays? <laughs> it's a very, very esoteric uh, computer science uh, problem that uh, originated in the, the, the mid 70s, I wanna say. I think maybe the first instance of it was like 72. Uh, in its first form, and then like in the, the mid eighty or early to mid eighties is when it was actually kind of codified into the the problem that's that's uh, as we know it today. And broadly speaking, it's it's been posited and talked about in a few different ways. But basically, we're talking about like a, an army that's part of the Byzantine Empire, and the structure of that army is a little bit different from the hierarchical structure that we know about today, where you've got generals that function as peers rather than a top-down infrastructure where you've got generals and lieutenants and different stars of generals and whatnot. And in the Byzantine audience, in this, in this fictional situation, you've got an upcoming battle that's part of a much larger campaign, and you've got like 10, 12 generals that all need to communicate when to advance at the exact same point, right? If they all advance at the same time in unison, they win the battle, they win the campaign, 
if they retreat in unison, they will lose the battle but continue the campaign. If they uh, are in disarray, the whole empire is lost, right? So the, the computer science problem is how do you solve for that requirement? And how do you, and, and you add in other curveballs to this situation where some of the generals are traitors, so they don't have the best interests of the Byzantine Empire at heart. You've got some of the courier methods that may be unreliable, like the, the actual courier that carries the message from one general to the other might be compromised or have their own agenda that they're pursuing. And so how do you create a system of governance and a system of communication that advances the cause of the empire not and uh, incentivizes the individual constituents to behave in the best interest of the system as, as itself? And that is the solve that problem as we know today in computer science is called blockchain. And so blockchain solves that problem and is, I, I just, I'm just thinking of the question as I'm sitting here, that solves the problem of the generals all communicating with each other and knowing that the communication is real, that it's not a spy sending fake information you know, I guess, and that it's real information and they all get the information at the same time. Is that basically Not necessarily. It? Even, even uh, it has to be a system that can behave asynchronously. Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain are systems that can behave asynchronously uh, to, a, to an extent. There's, there's fault tolerance built into that uh, because you cannot guarantee that the messages will arrive in a tiny fashion. But what you can guarantee is if you have the system set up properly, that all the generals, or, or in case of blockchain, the nodes and the miners and the users will all behave in a manner that's consistent in preserving the system itself, regardless of what order they get information. So does proof of work fall into that? Yes. Okay. Proof of work is the, the boilerplate which all other systems try to emulate with different methods. Okay. Well, we're going to have to take a hard break here again in a few more seconds. So when we come back, I want to cover proof of work or POW or whatever we want to call it, because I think that's interesting. And to me, proof of work is kind of like people. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like life. I mean, proof of work is such a simple concept uh, when you get down to the basics of it to me, I think. So I want to cover that when we come back, proof of work. So stick with us during this break, Mark. And if you're watching, Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. And remember to tell your friends about this show. <laughs> Call them up now during this commercial. Get them on here. They need to be watching Bitcoin for Boomers. Now, I'm Gary Leland, the Bitcoin Boomer. Thanks for watching. We'll see you in a few. Hello, welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and I hope you're enjoying our show so far. I also wanted to tell you about another conference I do, a conference I do called BitBlock Boom. That's BitBlock Boom at BitBlockBoom.com. But I host this conference every year in Dallas, Fort Worth. And it's a great conference, if I say so myself. This year, it's, it's not going to be till, again until August 2021, but we've already sold out of almost 20% of the tickets. So we'll probably be sold out of next August's conference in a couple months. That's how good it is. So make sure if you're interested in Bitcoin, you take a moment and go to bitblockboom.com and check out next year's conference. You may want to get some tickets while the getting's good. 
Now let's bring Mark back on the channel here. Mark, thanks for sticking with us. And I, I want to go over proof of work because a lot of people like blockchain and Byzantine general, we're bringing up a lot of new subjects today. A lot of people watching the show have never heard of proof of work, except unless they were a kid and they had to dig a ditch and show their dad they dug the ditch to get paid. So what is proof of work and how is it involved in Bitcoin? Uh, very simply, uh, it's, it's Bitcoin mining. Uh, everybody at this point that has heard of the word Bitcoin has probably heard Bitcoin mining. Uh, but to put some more meat on the bone, uh, proof of work is any system where you can uh, conclusively demonstrate at the protocol level that work has happened and use that work as a means of securing uh, the protocol itself. Um, there's a, there's a, a, not that many ways to do it other than either brute force crack, well, not that many ways to do it uh, other than brute force cracking some kind of an algorithm. Now, the types of algorithms that that may be uh, vary from cryptocurrency to cryptocurrency, and some uh, cryptos will attempt to make that algorithm they're cracking useful outside of the protocol itself, such as like PyCoin, which calculates the decimal points of, that, of Pi to a certain level and uses that as a proof of work. Uh, but most cryptocurrencies are just brute force hacking uh, encryption algorithms. That, and those are, and what is an encryption algorithm? It's just the same. It's the thing that protects your data whenever uh, or protects data, either, whether it be on a hard drive or, or when it's in transit between you know, your web browser and the web server. Well, since now we're on the topic of mining, and most people, you're right, if they've heard of Bitcoin by now, they've heard of mining, whether they understand it or not is a different thing, but they know that they mine Bitcoin. People always go, how do they mine that? But the thing is, you mine it with a computer to answer that question. But when Bitcoin first came out, when you got into Bitcoin, I assume you could mine Bitcoin with a laptop. Uh, so the, the week or two that I got into running it on my, my main desktop, not just the netbook that I carried around with me. Because uh, I carried it around in my netbook for quite a while before I actually kind of got serious about it. But the week that I actually installed the client on my main desktop, that big old red monstrosity you used to see over at Livid Lobster. I, I saw uh, that. that. I remember that computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was the week that uh, they started writing the algorithms to run it off of your graphics card. So I missed out on the CP mine day by like literally a couple of weeks. Okay. And um, then I was going to say the next thing that happened was mining. You couldn't mine it with a, a laptop anymore, a computer. You had to have graphic cards, which are right. basically what gamers use, you know, to, to right. play their online games. Yeah. And, uh, and, and still many cryptocurrencies engineer their algorithms so that it permanently stays in the realm of video cards rather than progresses on to other things because after after uh, people realized that there was capital to be made, specifically engineering systems for Bitcoin mining, they started, it was almost immediately, they started creating something called FPGAs and ASICs, which did nothing but mine cryptocurrency and had no other purpose other than to do that. Now, I hear uh, ASICs all the time, but I rarely hear anyone mention FPGAs. I mean, um, I'm familiar with the term, I just, you hardly hear anyone even say that. Everybody just usually talks about ASICs, which is application specific 
integrated circuits. And that's, that's all an ASIC does. If it's made to mine Bitcoin, that's all it's going to do. It's a computer that can mine Bitcoin, basically. And when Bitcoin gets too hard to mine for that computer, when that software or that computer is not strong enough to mine Bitcoin, you might as well just throw it away because you can't do anything else with it. Or put it in a museum, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not like you can go, it's not like I got a laptop at work and I go, well, I can use this at home to keep uh, menus on uh, food. I can't do much with it, but I could use it for keeping menus on how to make food. You can't do anything really with it. I mean, it's made for right. one thing. Application specific means one thing, and that's mine and Bitcoin. Right. And FPGA is just a proto-ASIC. It's a field programmable gate array. And they're mostly used to design ASICs or design other types of chips with. So it's really FP, the FPGA era was like, I mean, not not precisely or literally five minutes, but in the like the, the grand scheme of things, it was a five minute era that led directly into the world of ASICs. Now, when it comes to ASICs, most ASICs are made in China. It seems like to me. Right. And uh, I see a few companies starting up in the U.S. or trying to start up in the U.S. And I've had people that have concerns about getting into Bitcoin because so much of it between the mining machines being made and so many mining farms being in China, they're concerned that China is so deeply involved in it that they could uh, destroy Bitcoin someday. What do you say about that? Uh, I mean, it comes down to Byzantine general thing, right? Um, it's it's a system that has uh, in its core, baked into its very core, the idea that it's it's not uh, it's not in everybody's best interest. Well, the, the, there's so many billions tied up, and not just the, the the protocol itself, the value of Bitcoin, but also the value of the mining equipment. What purpose would it serve for Chinese miners to blow up the protocol? They're just as, if not more so, invested in its continued existence than you are as a Bitcoin hodler. Number one, they've got a fortune in equipment. If you were to attempt to do that, which we would call a 51% attack, I guess, because you have 51% right. hash power. So if you were attempting to do that, not, would you have only, not only would you have spent a fortune in mining machines trying to control that much of the hash power, you would have spent a fortune in electricity getting to that point to get that much of the hash power and you would have possibly billions of dollars that you're trying to make worthless that your goal that you would have obtained on the way and now your your goal is to make that billion dollars worthless that you have for sure for sure well and there's other ways that you could do it because a 51 percent attack would not be the most efficient way to destroy cryptocurrency I don't know. We could probably spend like three seconds just talking about why this is. This well, we got two. Happen. We got two minutes left before a break, so let's finish it up with this. This sounds like a good. Uh, sure. Yeah. 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 So you can't even if you fifty-one percent attack to either fork the chain or to uh, rewrite the ledger. You only go back so far into the ledger's history. Like you can't just you can't take Satoshi's coins. Like that's not something that you can do uh, within the protocol without making deep changes to the protocol itself. You can't just yank in. You can change. You can change the circulating supply. You could do. You do a number of things, but if you you have to have buy-in from more than just the miners. There's another reason why, uh, not just that it's uh, not in their financial interests to do so, but why it would probably be possible for them to do as some of the naysayers predict would be 
because the, just because there's a majority of mining equipment in China does not mean it's unilaterally aligned behind the same financial interests. Uh, and there's this thing called pooling uh, when it comes to mining. Right? So we are past the era where you can make any amount of money at all with a reliable degree of certainty with a single, not just a single piece of equipment, but even a single data center of equipment. Right? You have to band together hundreds of people's and hundreds of individuals and entities, data centers and mining equipment to have a reasonable assurance that you're going to win a block on the, on the Bitcoin blockchain. Okay. So that means we're gonna you're not to... going to have to align just uh, a single country, a single individual's interest or a single company's interest, but uh, a grand conspiracy of hundreds of people with competing interests. Okay, well, we'll come back with this in just a minute. we got a hard break here. So let's go to that hard break. Thanks for watching. We'll continue this in a minute after this break. Welcome back to the Bitcoin for Boomers show. I'm your host, Gary Leland. We're recording in beautiful Arlington, Texas at the Biz TV studios, right between Dallas and Fort Worth. And today we're joined by Mark Hopkins, an old friend of mine who's been involved in tech a long, long time. Well, Mark, before we left for the break, we were talking about uh, China or Bitcoin mining, China mining, uh, <laughs> China mining, as as Trump says, <laughs> and uh, about the fact that it wouldn't be in anyone's best interest; that it'd be too costly to go into. Now, I want to propose something to you that I heard Dr. Saifedean Amous, the writer of the Bitcoin Standard, he was asked what he thought would be the one thing that could kill Bitcoin if anything could kill Bitcoin. And I'm curious, as and I, and I believe I'm stating the question correctly. I might be a little off, so, but I, I think I'm stating the question correctly. And his answer was that he thought the most serious thing, and not that it could kill Bitcoin, but that would ever have a chance of killing Bitcoin would be if the U.S. dollar went back to the gold standard. Wh what do you think of that thought? I thought that was an interesting thought, because when you think of killing Bitcoin, you don't think of that. You think about a targeted attack to me on the network or or something like that. So I think he's basically saying that's not going to happen. So it would be... Uh, I would say that would, probably, that would rank on my list of things that would uh, that would be a threat to Bitcoin, for sure. I don't think it would kill Bitcoin, but it could dramatically affect the price, if that's something you care about, and a lot of us do. Uh, and and the question might have been what could like harm Bitcoin. It may not have been what could kill it. So that's why I said, I phrased it. But it brought up the topic to me. It would be like a number one, two, or three threat. Yeah, it, it would rank up there in the top ten for sure. What do you think would be a couple more threats to Bitcoin? Because people always are telling me, when, you, when I get into somebody my age, I'm just telling them about Bitcoin, which I really don't go around preaching anymore. If someone asks me, I'll tell them about it. But that is one of the threats that, that things are always worried about is someone's going to knock out Bitcoin because it's on a computer, that it's going to just disappear one day. To disappear, there's got to be something, attack it or a threat. What do you think would be another one or two threats that possibly, if you can think of any off the top of your head? Like, um, the, 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 big, the biggest threats um, to me would be uh, a, a fantastical leap forward in quantum computing. 
would end Bitcoin almost immediately. Uh, which, and I, and I don't want to create fear, uncertainty, and doubt with that statement. I, I mean a fantastical leap forward. As it currently stands, if nothing changes with the Bitcoin protocol and nothing accelerates forward uh, the, the, the world of quantum computing, we've got 30 to 40 years left before quantum computing can pose a real threat to Bitcoin. Well, now, um, I saw Google six months ago announced they had solved a problem or something using quantum computing. Um, yeah. And, and so it's out, so why is that quantum computing uh, not what we're talking about? What is the difference between it now and 30 years from now, what you're saying is when it would be an, a problem? Oh, it's, it's, it's just the rate. It, so there's a, there's a you know, you, you, you're familiar with the uh, Moore's Law. Yes, which is doubles uh, every 18 months. Right, and then there's something called the Law of Accelerating Returns, Kurzweil's Law, uh, which is... Uh, which basically takes Moore's law and looks at that and the relationship to other types of industries. There's a similar uh, axiom for quantum computing, and it's called Rose's law. What is it called? And basically, it is it is uh, Moore's law to the power of Moore's law. So you can look at um, a graph and plot out advances in the speed of, and, and efficacy of quantum computing, and have a, a really a reliable predictor of where quantum computing is going to be in five minutes from now and five years from now and ten years from now. And if as long as quantum computing continues to progress along Rose's law, we've got like and, and Bitcoin difficulty ratings continue to progress along a predictable pathway, it's a thirty or forty year period of time before they cross over. Okay, well good enough. So I had not you know I knew quantum computing was an issue to be concerned with but I had not even thought about that as being a, a top issue to be concerned with. I, sh I should say that uh, this is not my theory and it's not my research on that. MIT, about a year and a half ago, put out a very, very well-documented paper that explains everything I just summarized. Well, you know, back on the gold standards conversation that SAFE brought up, you know, uh, that that could do some damage to Bitcoin or, or harm it in some way or another. You know, a country has never gone back to a standard that has disappeared before. You know, they didn't go back to seashells. They didn't go, <laughs> they haven't gone back to anything once it's moved on to the next generation. Yeah, I can't think of an example of that. Yeah. So. But there's, you know, the thing, you, you don't want to rule anything out. Uh, and, and the United States going back on the gold standard might not be something that's very plausible, but the Federal Reserve shifting to a, uh, a fixed monetary supply for a new e-currency is something uh, unlikely, but within the realm of possibility, because uh, I, myself, as well as a number of people here in the Dallas-Fort Worth blockchain community have been acting as consultants and occasional advisors to the local Federal Reserve Governor's Board here. Uh, and so I wouldn't say that they're uh, Austrians or Chicagoans by any stretch of the imagination, they're still very firmly in the MMT camp, which is not fixed monetary supply. But they're aware of Bitcoin, they're, uh, they understand cryptocurrency and blockchain at a level that you and I understand it. And so that option of going to a digital currency with a fixed monetary supply cannot be ruled out as a possibility. Well, if they needed a fixed monetary supply and they did go back to gold, you know, I don't think the United States would have enough gold 
to use that as a standard. And so yeah, it's just a number. Huh? Right. I mean, it's, it's just like decimal points, right? You just, it doesn't matter how much gold you have. It's a matter of, you know, where do you affix that decimal point? You know? Well, don't you have to compete with the other countries that are stocking gold, like China and Russia, who are stocking supposedly a ton of gold and buying it on a regular basis compared to what the U.S. is? So my question was going to be, and if that doesn't matter, then it's a mute question, but my point was going to be, are we going to see, like, in the early 1900s, if that happened, where the United States would come confiscate everybody's gold again and make it illegal to own gold? I mean, maybe. Uh, it's also like a, you know, a prove-it situation, right? This is where blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin have a massive advantage over the gold standard. I can prove exactly how many Satoshis there are. Uh, and it's trivially easy for me to do it. And I guarantee you, anybody watching this show with any level of knowledge, I can show you how to do the exact same thing with like three mouse clicks. Try doing that with gold. Yeah, no one how many, how much They've been mining gold since before Jesus was around, and he still hadn't run out. I mean, there's a lot of that stuff around. Well, Mike, uh, yeah. Mark, our time is about up. We have a minute or two. So I do want to give you the opportunity before we go to tell people where they can follow you or, or find out more information or get in touch with you if they have something or whatever you want to promote here, my, my friend. Absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm just a guy who, who plays around on the Internet and does fun stuff. So if you want to you want to help me out, just follow me on Twitter. That's been on the bottom here for most of the show. Or uh, there's, a, there's a protocol that I, a uh, uh, software I like to use called Telegram. I publish news and have a discussion group. And the, uh, the, the, the Telegram channel is uh, t.me slash drbitcoin. And you put out a lot of good content on that channel because I do watch that. So that's a good channel to watch. And I, I like your logo on there. That's a good logo that you've designed for Dr. Bitcoin. I, I still remember at BitBlock Boom two years ago, you were the guy who came in at the last minute and substituted for in a conference or in a uh, panel making the part of the guy who hated Bitcoin. <laughs> and we're going, this is Dr. Bitcoin. And you even have to say, hey, guys, I really don't hate Bitcoin. I just got asked to do this earlier today. That was a real trooper. Play it on TV. Huh? I said I don't, I don't hate Bitcoin, but I play like I don't TV. It was, it was. You were a trooper at that point. Well, Mark, thanks yeah. again for joining us, and I look forward to you. We'll see each other in the next month for sure. And everybody watching, Absolutely. we're going to take a break now and come back and wrap up the show for the day and wrap up the season for the season, I guess. Wrap up the show for the season, and I do want to make sure you know. Send your questions to GaryLeland at gmail.com if you have any questions for us, and we'll answer them for you. Enjoy talking to you, Mark. Enjoy talking to you, audience. We'll see you right after this break. And we're back. That's right, we're back for the Bitcoin for Boomer show. I'm your host, Gary Leland, and it's a sad day indeed. It's the last three-minute segment, the last show of the season of the Bitcoin for Boomer show. Hey, I hope you've enjoyed the show and enjoyed the season. I think Mark did a great job today. I enjoyed listening to Mark and talking with Mark. It's a smart guy. He really is, much smarter than me, but many people are, so that may not be anything new. But I enjoyed talking with Mark. I've enjoyed having the season with you. Hey, do we have a question real quick before we get out of here? Last question for the season, Trav. 
Uh, last question. Well, you know, for me, maybe I would say <laughs> that, uh, uh, you know, I just I got in when you told me when I first started talking to you about it. And uh, what's the best advice I can do right now? Not really having a lot of money. You know, I, I think the best thing you can do right now, and we had two people on the show this season from Swan Bitcoin. Go to Swan Bitcoin, S-W-A-N, Bitcoin.com slash Gary. Go to SwanBitcoin.com slash Gary and sign up for dollar cost averaging and start buying you even if it's $5 worth of Bitcoin a week. You know, you'd be surprised how quickly that grows, just saving $5 a week. And before you know it, a year or two go by, you have a Bitcoin there. And then Bitcoin starts going up in value. But a lot of people keep saying, I'm going to wait, I'm going to get some, I'm going to get some. But you're not going to miss $5 a week. You probably can afford $5 a week. Some people, can, some people I've told this to buy $50 or $100 a week. But that's the thing, the number one thing to do is to get into the game, to get some Bitcoin. And like I said, you know, people who bought $5 worth 10 years ago were buying it at 50 cents a Bitcoin. So when they bought $5 worth, they got 10 of them. So 10 of them now would be $100,000. So those people are glad they were buying $5 worth a week. I sure wish I was. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So get on there and start buying you a little bit of Bitcoin every week at Swan. And if you use that link I gave you, Gary Leland, or swanbitcoin.com slash Gary, you'll get $10 worth of Bitcoin free for, on your first purchase, I believe is how it works. So check that out. I wouldn't plan on doing a commercial for Swan Bitcoin, but it's a great service. I personally use it myself. I have my sister using it, so I'm just telling you about something I believe in is all. But everybody, thanks for joining us this season, and hopefully we'll see you uh, next season on the Bitcoin for Boomers show. I'm Gary Leland saying be happy, enjoy, and get you some Bitcoin. Bye. <laughs>